0: Hi everyone, and welcome back to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, Doctoral Candidate in Neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at the PFL in Switzerland, and I will be a host today. Today we'll be talking to Stephen Wheeler about the new book, Reimagining Sustainable Cities, Strategies for Designing Greener, Healthier, More Equitable Community, book written by him and Christina Rosan cutting-edge solutions-oriented analysis of how we can reimagine cities around the world to build sustainable futures. Positive, readable, and constructive in tone, reimagining sustainable cities identifies across, ranging from urban design design to institutional restructuring that can bring about fundamental change and prepare us for the challenges ahead. Well, Stephen, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Galina.
0: So how are you? How was your week?
1: My week has been great. I'm on sabbatical this year, so I get to not go to faculty meetings and stay at home and work on books, which I really like.
0: Oh, wow. Excellent. Are you catching a bit of sunshine?
1: Yeah, it's very sunny here this time of year. Uh, It has been warm this week. It was almost 100 degrees um, Fahrenheit. Um, But yes, we we do. It is summertime here. We do hot weather gardening and swimming and stuff outside.
0: Excellent. Well, can you tell us what do you do?
1: I am a professor in the uh, uh, Department of Human Ecology at UC Davis, but my specialty is really city planning, urban design, uh, urban planning and sustainable development. So I teach, I research, Uh, I do service, and I try to be an activist as much as possible. And at at the moment, our big campaign is to get the University of California off fossil fuels. So that is our challenge.
0: And what are the primary drivers behind what you do?
1: Well, to use the limited time I have to change the world for the better, um, to address whatever issues I can to improve sustainability, to improve people's lives, to help students, to help our communities. Uh, so I look for opportunities to make a difference. And I have uh, pretty much tried to do this my whole life, which um, I can tell you about in a minute. <laughs>
0: And how did you get interested in working on the environment?
1: Well, it was partly the environment I grew up in, uh, which affect us all. I grew up in eastern Massachusetts and watched as a kid suburban sprawl sort of take over the eastern half of the state. Uh, this was a while ago. Uh, And Boston, the city of Boston was expanding very rapidly with very little planning as in much of the US. And I saw uh, people driving more and more. I saw farmland being covered with subdivisions. I saw people living in very far flung and atomized neighborhoods with no real connection to one another. Uh, and that addressing that physical landscape has been one of the things driving me. I also grew up at a time that there were many social problems uh, growing. Uh, the Vietnam War, for example, which the Vietnamese, of course, called the American War. Um, so every night on TV, I saw images of uh, the war in black and white. And a little bit later, the environmental crisis uh, broke in North America and also other parts of the world, people realized we need to respond to the quality of our air and water and toxic chemicals in the environment and energy problems. Uh, And so that was a huge concern of the time. As a young person, it became clear to me that society as we had it was not working very well, and cities and towns as we were building them were not working very well. Uh, I learned more about that in college. I had the great good fortune as a student, uh, as an undergraduate, to study with Danella Meadows, who was the lead author of a book called Limits to Growth. Uh, Again, this was quite a while ago, but that was the first attempt by a team of computer scientists at MIT to model the future of the world, and they fed in lots of numbers about pollution and resource use and population and economies, and every scenario they constructed turned out to crash partway through the 21st century, and they concluded that the path that industrial societies were on is unsustainable. They were the first group to use the term sustainability in print, but they weren't necessarily pessimistic. They said that humanity could choose to move in more sustainable directions and that the sooner we did so, the better. Uh, That was nearly 50 years ago. So I was inspired by studying with Dana, as we called her. I was inspired to become an activist, to get involved in a whole lot of different causes of the time, uh, uh, protesting against nuclear energy, uh, also the nuclear arms race, uh, for renewable energy, against apartheid in South Africa, uh, and for peace in many different uh, iterations. After college, I went to uh, Washington D.C. It seemed that was the place that politics happened and where one might be able to make a difference. And I worked for much of a decade for Friends of the Earth, a non-governmental uh, organization, as well as several others. And in my twenties, became a lobbyist in Washington. I were much nicer. Suits then that I then I do now. Um, actually, I haven't worn a suit in years, but that's another story. We're in California in California we dress very casually uh, and I learned how the legislative process works and how politics uh, works in Washington. Um, I the main topic I was working on was the nuclear arms race, which was a very big deal at the time. Uh, This was the 1980s. Um, But I found myself wandering around uh, Capitol Hill in my early 20s, still uh, trying to organize a peace lobby in Washington, but thinking, where are all the grownups? You know, we have these serious global problems. And what am I doing in my early 20s trying to, you know, organize resistance to the directions that? Uh, society was headed. Um, And I have continued to wonder that ever since. After almost a decade in DC, I moved to uh, the San Francisco Bay Area. I got involved in more local uh, causes. I decided that I didn't want to spend my life stopping bad things from happening or trying to. I wanted to spend my time helping good things happen, in particular, helping more sustainable and livable cities come about. Um, so I got involved at a very nuts and bolts level in bicycle planning and pedestrian planning and stream restoration and promoting affordable housing projects and trying to help cities reduce motor vehicle use and lots of other uh, local and regional issues such as those. I then decided eventually that it was okay to go back to grad school. I had had no use for academia as a young person because I didn't see academics as particularly addressing the issues of the time. Um, I saw them as getting involved in very specialized uh, work that often wasn't very connected to policy or contemporary problems. But I did go back and get a master's and PhD in city and regional planning, and since uh, the 90s I had been trying to be an activist academic on the subject of sustainable cities. Um, I was told by the faculty at the time I went back to grad school that sustainability was a fad and would be gone in a couple years. That was 30 years ago. As a grad student, I started teaching uh, a class at Berkeley called Planning for Sustainability. And that class is still being taught. Um, And I then taught at the University of New Mexico for a while, and now I am at the University of California, Davis. But through it all, I have tried to take this very synthetic view of how communities, cities and towns, and also exurban areas, can become more sustainable. And I have had the good fortune to witness uh, several generations of action to try to bring that about. Um, and that is where this book comes in, because this book is uh, reimagining sustainable cities, is talking about the current needs for sustainability within cities and towns, and how those differ from the agendas of the past and maybe where the future is going in terms of our communities.
0: Oh, wow. That's a truly impressive career. So what would you say to our student listeners and people who really want to get involved and make an impact in this area?
1: Well, Change is usually brought about by young people. Um, Yes, those of us who are older can make a difference too, maybe, but uh, change is generational. It comes about from people seeing the world in different ways and bringing different values and mindsets to it. And protesting uh, against things they don't like, but also creating new ways of living so yeah young people are where it's at Um, and there is a fair bit of hope in that because a lot of young people are driving less than their fathers and grandparents did they are often choosing to live in more urban locations and somewhat uh, less materialistic ways they are eating less meat they are living lives that often reduce their carbon emissions. Yes, we all have a long way to go in that regard. but um, And they are often more tolerant of diverse, diversity within society um, in terms of uh, race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, um, the role of women. So there, there is quite a bit of hope with younger people. That being said, we need to go further all of us uh, need to push ourselves a bit. So whoever you are, go for it and try to look for local opportunities to take a lead in your communities or just with your friends and family.
0: So as you mentioned, your latest book is Reimagining Sustainable Cities, Strategies for Designing Greener, Healthier, More Equitable Communities that you uh, wrote with your co-author, Christina Rosan. So can you tell us how did you come to writing it?
1: Yeah, it was actually conceived at a conference. Um, we were just talking in the book fair. Lots of conferences have book fairs. And we said, why don't we try to do a a lighter, more accessible, almost pop culture, take on sustainable cities Mm -hmm. and uh, be optimistic, be constructive, um, try to have lots of photos and stuff uh, as opposed to sort of heavier textbooks. Um, And I'm not sure we 100% succeeded in uh, changing our authorial voices. But we did, I think, succeed in having a relatively upbeat and constructive tone. Uh, We tried to address a dozen major challenges that face cities and look at creative strategies that are being done or have been done historically around the world and how we all might build on those in the future. Uh, So this was a, um, concept that took quite a few years took through you know four or five years to reach fruition. Um, we like to think of ourselves at the beginning as writing in a totally different style, sort of being extremely off the cuff and it turns out to be difficult to do that if particularly if you're used to writing. Uh, in very careful footnoted ways. But I think it is pretty readable. And I think it is uh, hopefully um, optimistic and hopefully we'll get at things that lots of readers are wondering about. How do we get to carbon neutrality or fossil free status? That's something lots of us are wondering about. How do we have more affordable housing? That's something lots of us care about. Um, how do we green cities, how do we um, uh, get around with fewer cars, how do we manage land more sustainable, sustainably, and other topics such as that. Now, let me address the title of the book, Reimagining Sustainable Cities. Why reimagining? Yes, we all know that there are green buildings in our cities currently, and there are creative things that are being done. Well, yes, but obviously not quite enough. And many of the past things that have been done fit into a certain set of categories. We have a lot of green buildings. We have an increasing amount of renewable energy. We have environmental restoration projects in pieces of land and along creeks and shorelines. We have bicycle planning, pedestrian planning, things like that. All of these things are wonderful. This is sort of the past generation of sustainable city action, which, you know, much of which dates back 40 or 50 years at this point. But it is not really getting at many of the underlying issues. It is not reducing these things are not reducing greenhouse gas emissions nearly as much as we need to do. They have not succeeded in stemming the rise in motor vehicle use in many places. They have not succeeded in addressing social equity concerns in many places and in making housing affordable in many places. they have not succeeded in inventing a new economy that is truly sustainable and that does not rely on continued growth in material production, which by definition is impossible indefinitely on a finite planet. Uh, There's probably other things I could bring in, but we have some of these serious underlying sustainability concerns, so we need a new reimagining which brings in structural change and the next generation of sustainable city work will need to address these structural institutions and systems that cause these problems. So inequality, um, climate, uh, economy, these are going to take bigger, more visionary initiatives. And there are exciting things in all these areas going on, but we are at the beginning uh, in the second dec- third decade of the 20th 21st century of tackling these structural uh, challenges.
0: Well, let's dive into your book. And can we start with a sort of very basics? So could you explain to us what is a social ecology?
1: Okay, one of the key concepts behind the whole term sustainability is seeing the world holistically, uh, seeing the world as a multi dimensional group of systems that into uh, the elements that interrelate, that evolve, that co evolve, thinking ecologically as opposed to much of the 20th century scientific thought, which was often fairly linear, that looked at linear systems, that looked at cause and effect, that looked at disciplines in isolation from one another. Uh, And in my field, urban planning, this was one source of our current problems. We had transportation planners who simply looked at transportation systems without thinking enough about how those affected land use and housing decisions and air quality and social equity so thinking ecologically means weaving together all these dimensions of the context in which we live and seeing the social dimensions very much in there along with the natural science dimensions that is not an easy thing to do Um, It takes a lot more practice for all of us. Uh, None of us is perfect at it, but it is the challenge of the future because that's the way we are going to solve problems, to internalize all their dimensions and to work out solutions that really do benefit everyone. Um, So we do use this term social ecology. There are other related terms. Some people talk about human ecology. Okay, I am actually in a department of human ecology at UC Davis. Um, Mm. um, Doesn't mean everybody uses that term, but it's out there. Some people prefer the term intersectionality. And if you talk to graduate students uh, in many disciplines these days, that is the buzzword intersectionality. Uh, But all these terms are talking about the same thing. They are talking about a more interconnected way of seeing the world and of seeing each other and of understanding human communities and their overlaps with natural systems. And this is what we need for the future. So this is the mindset that we are using for this book. Um, And Uh, We are trying to get across how problems interrelate and solutions interrelate. Um, Another person who talked about this historically was an environmental philosopher, John Tillman Lyle. He used to contrast industrial and engineering solutions to problems, which tend to be single-purpose and technology-heavy. Uh, for example, taking a flooding problem and building a concrete channel for the river versus regenerative solutions. And we could also use the term sustainable for that, which try to be multidimensional, try to be ecological in both the social and natural sense, and try to address many dimensions of the context. So if we take the case of our flooding river or stream, instead of building a big concrete channel, which was a single purpose engineering solution, we work with the floodplain, we restore the floodplain, and we don't try to build in the floodplain. But we revegetate it, and we look at the whole watershed, and we reduce the impervious surfaces in the watershed so the water doesn't all run off quickly into the river and then flood. We uh, restore the habitat and the vegetation. And what we wind up in the end is a solution to flooding problems that also has wonderful ecosystem benefits. It has benefits for species. It provides wonderful recreational assets for people. It has aesthetic beauty. It is a very multifunctional solution. So uh, this sort of approach, the regenerative, the ecological, Uh, approach versus the 20th century industrial engineering, uh, modernist scientific approach is, I think, what the 20th century is going to emphasize, 21st century is going to emphasize.
0: And with the term sustainability, so what exactly does that mean? And how does it relate to terms like for example, sustainable economy or circular economy, for example, or durability as well. Does it also encompass durability of the city?
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, we build a lot of buildings these days that are only designed to last for 20 or 30 years. Um, Europe is a little bit better at the, than North America at this. Many of your buildings are older and built a little bit better, but still the same problems exist worldwide uh, these days. We have whole landscapes that basically will be abandoned in a generation. Uh, China is full of um, high rise satellite cities that are half empty. Um, um, They are built very, very rapidly. We have a whole economics that encourages a short term approach to things. So again, all of this is changing our ways of thinking, Uh, thinking long-term, thinking holistically, thinking ecologically. Uh, Sustainability does not depend on technology per se. Uh, Yes, there are many forms of cool green technology that are useful, but high-tech is not gonna solve our basic problems as for cities and communities. Um, and often the low tech solutions are most appropriate. So, this is one thing I learned back to my days as a student with Dana Meadows, who coined the term sustainability. Uh, she was very a very strong believer that what's important is not uh, technology but cognition, how we see the world, how what we value, how we uh, the mindsets we go around with. Um, and this is from somebody who had got her degrees at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and, you know, had a very high level of technical expertise. But that is really important. One of the things I do as a professor is to try to think about what is sustainability education as opposed to education as usual. Um, we have university systems and indeed entire educational systems that have caused many of the problems that we see around us currently. They have encouraged people to over-specialize in many cases. They have encouraged people to think about problems in isolation, disconnected from their context. Um, They have encouraged the sort of linear uh, single issue thinking that I've been referring to earlier. So how do we have systems of education and thought that encourage people to see holistically? Um, How do we have economies that encourage people to see holistically? Um, Now, some countries have been uh, making progress on this for quite a while, back in 1996, I believe Germany passed a law requiring producers uh of many things to take back their products and reuse portions of them Um, and we need every place to do that Uh, we need the embodied energy and the embodied carbon in everything we buy or eat uh, to be considered and made clear to the purchaser or the consumer uh, and the producer as well uh, we're going to need, in some cases, to put prices on these things so that the price of emitting carbon reflects the cost. Um, lots of specific institutional changes can help these lifestyle changes and these cognitive changes come about. Um, but as I mentioned, we are we're kind of still at the beginning of doing this, and all of us may be able to find creative ways to push this direction further.
0: So if you had to build a sustainable city, how would you go about it?
1: That is a very good question. There is no one way to go about it. If you look at the world's cities, every place does some things well, and some things not so well. Uh, So the first thing, starting point is to learn from everywhere, uh, whatever we can. That being said, much of the most, many of the most interesting places we have in the world are those that have been built slowly and incrementally over time. And for the last hundred years, we have had a global economy that has been pushing large scale master planned communities of different types, enormous redevelopment projects, a very big scale of development where a whole neighborhood is built at once. Those places tend to be less interesting. They may be fairly energy efficient if they have been recently built according to current codes, but other aspects don't work as well. They're not as diverse. They don't have the diversity of businesses, the small businesses that can't afford those new spaces. Um, So getting back to a slower, more incremental style of city building, I think is one main direction we can we can definitely bring in. Getting back to more local economies, I think, or regional economies is a second. Um, we don't need to tra- transport everything halfway around the world. We, uh, there are many benefits to keeping the money in the local community or in the region, uh, keeping the jobs there, um, and having smaller scale local owners of businesses who may feel a bit more engagement and responsibility to local communities and uh, help build social capital in a place. Um, Another dimension is the greening dimension. Uh, My colleague Tim Beatley likes to talk about biophilic cities, cities um, that love life. and where nature is present everywhere. So virtually any street, any building, any neighborhood can be greened uh, literally by bringing vegetation back, bringing ecosystems back, doing green roofs, green walls, green streets, um, unearthing waterways that may have been placed in pipes, um, uh, making nature visible around us. and that is an important dimension. Um, Yet another dimension is a social dimension. Um, We have cities and towns that have exploded outwards over the last hundred years. They used to be relatively compact, relatively diverse places, and people did not always get along, but at least they were in close proximity and could in the best of circumstances, learn from one another and accept one another, but during the last 100 years, um, now they're living a 100 kilometers away from one another. You have gated communities, certain places, you have very impoverished immigrant communities, other places, you have uh, lots of separation, physical separation. So reducing that, uh, having a diversity of housing forms in each neighborhood, which tends to uh, enable a diversity of people uh, to live um, close to one another if the price, if there is a price range that people can afford. Um, Having a diversity of businesses, um, having a good balance of jobs, housing, um, shopping, and fun activities, recreation in each neighborhood. So improving balance, improving compactness, improving diversity um, of cities is a, uh, yet a, 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 good, a social dimension that has physical manifestations but also social benefits. Um, and make cities, frankly, more fun, more vibrant. We we see different stuff as we walk around the streets. We see different people. We get to know different people. And we hopefully then will become more tolerant and less uh, polarized. Uh, The rise, I will mention also one of our challenges currently worldwide is the rise of populism, right-wing populism, uh, which verges on authoritarianism. Uh, The U.S. certainly has its problems with this, with Trump and others, but Britain um, uh, with um, Johnson and France and even Germany and even Sweden has the Sweden Democrats, I think, are the right-wing party. Um, And then Hungary, we have authoritarian leaders worldwide. We have democracy on the decline. So there is a question, how do we have uh, communities that have a healthy and sustainable politics. Um, uh, And that, as with these other dimensions of the sustainable city, there is no one answer, but bringing people together, promoting social capital, promoting a diverse, small-scale, locally-oriented culture where people take stewardship not only of the... Uh, natural ecology, but also of the society, the local society, um, and the local economy. Um, that is a one of the answers to the future sustainable city question. So, all these dimensions are part of our vision of the reimagined sustainable city of the future. There are other dimensions as well. One of my favorites is simply having cities that are more fun, you know, um, that are not all about, uh, grim survival or trying to, um, cope with a feeling of alienation from political, unresponsive political systems or globally managed economies, but are more whimsical, local, artistic, uh, musical, what, what have you. Um, and that bring out the creativity in all of us and the joy uh, of being together, doing stuff together and creating healthier places together. Mm-hmm.
0: So basically, uh, with the engineering of sustainable cities, we can even solve some of these big societal problems like inequality and uh, alienation of people, is it?
1: Yes, there are multiple causes for alienation. I want to focus on that because it is a big, big issue in many societies currently. Some of them are physical. Okay. Engineers in North America built and other places built freeway systems over the last century. Um, Sounds good. Okay. We'll have lots of movement of freight and people, but that enabled this vast decentralization of communities and it enabled the rich often to go live in a gated community uh, around the golf course. And uh, it put the, Poor who could not afford those places somewhere else in an older, declining neighborhood. And uh, this sort of fragmentation, and it has led to the alienation. Also, the big scale of business and the way that basically we have power elites that control these societies that often have impoverished working-class individuals and removed any sense of control from their lives, uh, that has been a main cause of alienation. Um, Maybe Switzerland, where I think you are based, is uh, doing better than the US. But uh, in many parts of the world, this spatial and social fragmentation and this decline of democracy where these very big scale corporate and political systems are running the country and the media uh, has led to not just alienation, but major uh, drug problems, major um, uh, problems with suicide and depression and all sorts of personal mental health struggles that people are engaged in right now. Um, So, a healthy city is one that combines um, sensible infrastructure, sensible economy, uh, a more local politics, with a with healthy individuals.
0: So, how can sustainable cities help us solve some other problems, especially environmental ones? So, can sustainable cities be carbon neutral, because we know that they're very hungry for energy, for example.
1: Yes, uh, the way to carbon neutrality or zero emissions, zero net emissions is actually not all that complicated. The first step is to electrify everything, to electrify transportation, And we are making progress with that to electrify buildings. And we are beginning to make progress with that as well, replacing fossil fuel heat and cooling with electric heat pumps using techniques such as uh, ground source heat pumps where pipes basically go through the ground and take the heat or cool of the earth to heat or cool the building. Um, to electrify industry and other aspects of the economy, and then to generate all that electricity in renewable ways. So that whole electrification piece, we know how to do that. We just need to do it a whole lot faster. Then there are other pieces. There is a diet piece, uh, meat and processed foods uh, and dairy. All of those produce emissions. Um, and frankly, we're going to have to change our diets a fair bit. Now, many younger people have already been doing that for quite some time. Um, so we know the path, many parts of the path there too, and we can change agriculture as well to reduce the amount of tillage, to reduce the amount of nitrogen fertilizer, to handle manure in better ways. So there are specific steps. That can further reduce there. Um, There are a few other places um, that are going to be more difficult in the economy. Uh, Air travel is going to be very difficult. Um, There is some hope that battery-powered electric planes or other types of very low emitting aircraft can be developed. And there are people working on that. But for the time being, we're all going to have to travel less, um, quite a bit less. And I think, luck- luckily for those of us who want to take at least a trip or two a year, um, most of the change is going to have to happen there from people who commute regularly for business. There are people in my state of California who fly regularly from San Francisco to LA, you know, like three, four times a week. Uh, There are also lots of people in Britain who commute to Southern Spain for their vacation homes. And that sort of mega commuting by air uh, is really unsustainable in terms of carbon emissions. So that may just have to be uh, curtailed for some time, but so air travel is one of the thornier areas. Um, But the basic, um, and then efficiency, energy efficiency throughout the economy is uh, of course a important piece as well. And uh, you know, it's not rocket science. We know what to do in many cases. There is a whole passive house movement uh, started in Germany uh, to build structures that need no active heating or cooling. Uh, So, It will be a case of the public sector government um, incentivizing or requiring those very good energy efficiency practices to go with the electrified economy um, and the changes in diet and consumption that um, will then further reduce emissions, and that will take us to a small fraction of what we have today. Now, the other piece that's going to have to come into play is carbon sequestration. And um, we are going to have to figure out how to do that in forests and in soils Um, because we will always have some carbon emissions as a species. So we have to put it back uh, into the ground, Um, not through high-tech means, but, but simply through good uh, ecosystem management practices um, and lots of work is being done on that. We don't know all the answers, but, um, you know, the directions are becoming more clear. So on the area of carbon, those are a few of the um, main strategies. And I think one of our points in this book is that for any of the main directions for sustainability in cities or in other places. The basic strategies are relatively clear. The problem is the structural change to bring them about, uh, to diffuse the power of the oil industry, Uh, for example, the petrochemical industry, which has managed to stop much climate action to diffuse the power of big agribusiness, which has managed to stop a lot of the reforms to agricultural systems. Um, And that sort of structural, political and economic change is where we need to have the most attention.
0: And with regards to cities themselves being quite resilient to the fallout from the climate change, so how can we of prevent our cities to to be too susceptible to extreme weather conditions or rising seas for example? We are going in
1: some cases to have to retreat. Um, There is a spectrum of action. In some cases we can adapt. We can plant more trees to keep the streets cooler. Uh, We can also have shade from buildings and awnings. Uh, we can restore floodplains and coastal dune landscapes to reduce flooding. We can have uh, landscape design that also reduces rapid runoff from more serious storms. So all of those are adaptation actions. But in some cases we are going to have to retreat. Um, Miami will probably have to relocate because it is not going to be salvageable with sea level rise and with the risk of hurricanes. Um, In California, where I live, we have fire and the past generations have built a lot in what's known as the wildlife Uh, wildland urban interface, which are landscapes that burn regularly in the foothills and in the mountains. They get serious winds at certain times of the year that blow any spark into a major forest fire. Um, So those landscapes naturally burn and with climate, the climate crisis, they will burn more often and more intensely. And we're going to have to pull back. We're going to have to figure out ways to stop any further development and then incentivize people to relocate, and in some cases, um, help people relocate. So it's going to be a mix of these strategies uh, worldwide. Uh, And with any sustainability topic, the answers are almost always local. You've got to understand the local context, the regional context, the ecology, the politics, the economy. But then answers do start to emerge. Um, And the trick is often amassing the political will and the social will and the coalition of interests to um, make change happen. Now, luckily as crises become more severe, um, the politics changes and the window of opportunity opens. So we have to hope that, um, that that does in enough time for us to change.
0: You already said that there are some aspects of cities nowadays that are bad, some other are good. So can you give us a few of your favorite examples of sustainable aspects of some cities that you visited? Okay. Um,
1: Well, one of my most favorite is the presence of public art. Um, And to me, that is an indicator of the spiritual health of a place. Um, and almost everywhere cities have done uh, very interesting creative public art campaigns and installations in the last several decades. If you go back 50 or 60 years, public art used to be what we call plop art. It used to be big modernist abstract sculptures. Um, okay, that's better than nothing, but or before that, it used to be white men on horses. You would have a big statue of some famous explorer or military figure. Um, okay, well, both of those are better than nothing. But in the last generation, we've had a lot of art that is much more interactive and creative and um, whimsical and humorous um, or musical and those, uh, those works have proliferated. So, and th- let me mention one specific uh, type of art, which was started in Zurich, uh, your, your country, uh, which was a, an installation called Cows on Parade. They made all these big fiberglass, full-size cows, um, They gave them to the local artists to decorate in all sorts of incredibly colorful and whimsical ways. And then they placed them all around the city for, you know, for a limited time Um, and pedestrians interacted with them and they took selfies with them and they photographed their children climbing on them. And, you know, uh, they were an incredible magnet for people. That sort of thing revitalizes public space. It um, brings, An element of play into the civic world. And that's really important in my book. And then from Zurich, that spread to Chicago and many other cities and other cities used different animals. Um, In Washington, DC, they had donkeys and elephants, which are the two symbols of the American political parties. In Portland, Maine, where my family is from, they had lighthouses. Um, You know, Anyway, that sort of creative temporary uh, campaign was part of the sort of grassroots uh, pop-up revitalization of cities. Also pop-up food trucks um, have proliferated many places. Um, That sort of stuff bubbling up from the bottom makes cities really fun and interesting in in my book. That being said, we have also had a whole wave of Uh, ecological restoration in cities in the last uh, 30 years or so. Uh, So almost every city is looking at its waterfront if it has one or its waterways or whatever remnants of habitat that exist there and they are trying to restore those and make them into places that work ecologically as well as for people. So that, that biophilic city movement is... Uh, something that is a wonderful direction uh, for hope. And I think we have just gotten better at designing buildings also, not in every case, needless to say, but um, from the 20th century modernist slab building or the towers in the park, uh, the you know, very... No frills, gray concrete um, building. We have come a long way. We've learned to put a lot more diversity in terms of materials and form and uh, style into structures in the postmodern and post postmodern era. Um, and in some cases, we've learned to downscale things and just. Uh, fit them to the context better. This is an ongoing process. It can certainly go much further, but I think we are doing better in terms of building than we used to. So those are a few ways, a few directions that I think are really exciting about um, what's been happening with cities.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. We still got all of these cows all around the country.
1: (laughs) Yes, no, there's certainly lots of not so good stuff too, but, Uh, we'll do our best also to retrofit those. Lots of American suburbs, for example, you know, never built a downtown, you know, they were just a motley collection of different subdivisions uh, with no center. Well, many of them are trying to retrofit centers to themselves. And Mm -hmm. in some cases it's kind of silly, you know, they're just taking an old shopping center and trying to say, this is the new town center. But in other cases, they really are able to uh, retrofit a uh, a big enough collection of walkable streets and blocks and buildings to have it start becoming a civic space. Um, So yes, there's always something that can be done.
0: And what discoveries in your research for your book, Reimagining Sustainable Cities, surprised you the most?
1: Hmm. Well, I think some of the experiments that are being done in governance. The government is not working very well in many parts of the world. And even places that have tried very hard to have public engagement to have citizen participation have not always succeeded. For example, I used to live in Berkeley, which is a very, very progressive American small city. Uh, Berkeley tries very hard to involve the public and it has endless public meetings and workshops around everything. But the result is not necessarily good government. Um, The result often is that everyone gets burned out and the people who are the angriest or have the biggest economic incentive to stay involved, stay involved, and uh, then you don't get a good solution. So that whole era of public engagement planning isn't working that well. And what I was most surprised in the book was to find examples of some pretty different strategies. For example, Melbourne, Australia, um, uh, convened a citizen jury, uh, randomly chosen residents of the city who didn't even have to be citizens of Australia, um, who were given the power and professional staff to determine a portion of the city's budget and who went about it in a pretty thoughtful way and came up with some good recommendations that uh, were put into action. Um, California actually did a similar thing uh, to figure out its new uh, legislative districts. you know that's a institutional um, challenge that had to be handled, but it convened a group of volunteer citizens uh, uh, who actually came up with pretty good, the solutions in that case. So, some of these efforts, these new, more creative ways to get ordinary people involved in decision making with a set time frame that wasn't going to burn everybody out and that wasn't going to be tilted toward any particular special interest. Um, I think those hold a lot of opportunity for the future.
0: Um, for your future uh, sustainable cities, do we have any flying cars involved? <laughs>
1: Uh, I don't think so. (laughs) Um, Drones are not going to go away. Although we are gonna have to start regulating drones near urban airports because they're starting to get into some trouble. Um, But that sort of mm, whimsical high tech has been proposed for almost a hundred years now. And it hasn't come into reality for some very good reasons. One of which is it's a more difficult technology to make available to everyone. So it would be probably quite exclusionary. Uh, Another of which is that it would be very difficult to regulate and could lead to all sorts of safety problems. But the most important uh, problem with it is that it takes away from just the basic, walking, biking, human scale technology that we most need. Um, just having a walkable community where we uh, we are healthier, we meet our neighbors, we uh, have more time in our lives to just experience the world. Um, you know, that's the direction that's gonna make us healthier mentally, physically, socially probably economically. Um, And whiz-bang technology is not going to do it. In fact, it distracts from those directions. Um, So I think we actually have a problem with technology in many cases. In the US, we have a focus in our educational systems on what we call STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. I don't know if you have the same thing in Europe. But That's the big emphasis in K through 12 education and also in universities. STEM is not going to address the world's sustainability problems. Um, What is going to make the difference are the basic critical thinking skills, the basic value skills, a sense of compassion, a sense of caring about other people, a ability to work with other people, these basic humans and cognitive skills that I've been trying to emphasize the whole time, in which, and also in which we see as very central to reimagining sustainable cities. Those things are what's going to make the difference. So rather than STEM, what we need are more humanities, and we need very common sense social sciences, not um, high tech social science that depends on. Uh, you know, fancy regression analyses and so forth, but some understanding of how systems work and the stories that have unfolded in different parts of the world and what we can learn from them. So, um, yeah, flying cars or quantum computers, neither of them is going are going to uh, solve our problems. Um, what we need is growth as humans and as societies, um, sort of cognitive evolution instead.
0: Yeah, fair enough. (laughs) Well, this has been a truly fascinating discussion. So can you tell us what are you currently working on and what will be your next
1: project? My uh, current book is tentatively called The Compassionate Society. And it is, again, taking this same direction further uh, to look at the values that societies are based on and to think about how we change those structural dimensions um, to get away from power and um, money as the ultimate values of the society um, or even individualism, which is a big American value. And to think about how we reinforce caring uh, a society in which people actually care about the earth and about each other. And this is something our educational systems don't do real well. I think they're getting better at it in small ways, Um, but that is the evolutionary challenge I think that we have. And uh, the sooner we can address that directly, uh, the better for all of us, I think.
0: And what could be the best way for our listeners to find more information about your work and also your book?
1: Okay. Um, well, Reimagining Sustainable Cities is available from UC Press, um, University of California Press, and um, I'm sure they will send it anywhere in the world. I do also have another book uh, that will be coming out from Rutledge this year. Uh, which is the fourth edition of a textbook I've done called the Sustainable Urban Development Reader. Uh, And that is a collection of 60 some readings that span the spectrum of urban ecology, uh, that is urban systems. Um, And I write a introduction putting each one in the context of how our thought is changing uh, at this point in the 21st century. So I think that will be really useful background. I am hoping to get a website up very soon, but I do not yet have it for you. So um, um, for now, people can just go to the UC Davis website and look me up, S- Stephen with a PH, M Wheeler, W-H-E-E-L-E-R. And I will try to be better in the future about self-promotion.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you, Galina, for this interview. I appreciate it.